Morning, everyone. Good to see you. You know you've made it when the youth stay in, so high five to the youth. I can't promise to be very down with the kids, but I will give you some biblical truth to mull over this morning. So it's great to be with you. Joy and I have done a straight swap, which people might not have even noticed because people tend to think Joy and I are the same people anyway. I don't know how it happens, but um, it happens often where people say, oh, I got your text, and I'm like, sorry, what? Or, oh, wasn't it? I really loved it when you came and preached at this church, and I was thinking, I never came to preach at this church, but then I remember that Joy did, and now I just keep quiet and just think that maybe all female preachers look the same, I don't know. Um, But it's great to be with you. The church, well, the location of Highcombe sends their greetings to the location of Lincoln. Uh, Be very official about it, knowing that it's great to send your um, greetings and blessing as a location because, and not as a church, because we're one church, aren't we? We're one church in different locations, and it's great that all together, that we're meeting in different places and spaces today, but that we are one church. And I love it whether I'm in Highcombe or Lincoln or wherever I am. I really love the privilege of being able to unpack the word of God. It's what I adore doing, taking these ancient God-breathed truths, digging into them, seeing how we can apply them to our lives. We should all leave here today with our eyes lifted a bit more, with our chin lifted a bit more, with our spirits more in touch with his spirit because we've heard the word of God. And when we have the word of God spoken over us, we know that it does something. The book of Isaiah tells us it never returns back void. So as we declare the words of God, as we've sang about the truth of God, even in the prayer meeting before the service this morning, we were declaring the words of God over one another, over the service, over you, over church. So be prepared that God's going to do something in our lives this morning because that is how it works. I love how the texts and words written thousands of years ago can inform the way we live. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. And I love reading the Word of God. I'm fascinated about delving into the Word of God. And something I'm particularly interested in at the moment is looking at feasting throughout the Bible, looking at biblical meals, looking at feasting, looking what it was to gather around the table. And as a third generation Italian, I understand why Jews take feasting very seriously. I understand that it's part of their culture, that gathering around the table is important, that the table's almost the altar of the home. And we see this throughout scripture. It's where God meets us and he talks with us. And God literally did that in, and if you remember in the book of Exodus, after the 10 commandments have been given, God literally sat at the top of the mountain and ate dinner with his people. We haven't got time to go into that story this morning, but if you don't know it, I'd encourage you to look at it. Um, he ate dinner with Moses and Joshua, his servant, with Aaron, with Nadab, with Abihu, and the priests and the 70 elders of Israel. And he sat at the top of a mountain after a covenant had been made and he ate a meal with them. And I'm going to unpack why this is relevant a little bit this morning. But can you imagine everybody, maybe everybody's got their ideal dinner party guest list. I don't know if you've got one. I know that I've got mine. And I had a look at kind of who were the top people to have at your pretend dinner party. It's like a pretend tea party, but for grown-ups. And some of the top people, there was Nelson Mandela, Shakespeare, Oprah, Anne Frank. But imagine these guys, 75 of them, they absolutely topped it all because they had God. They sat and they ate dinner with God. 
and I love gathering around the table. Um, Despite being an out and out, or should I say an in and in introvert, you know, for all of those people that are introverts during the two minute social, I feel for you. (laughs) I know when you think, okay, speak to the person next to you, as an introvert, you can think, oh gosh, that's a little bit tricky, isn't it? Um, But despite being an introvert, I love having people around my table. And my friends who know I'm an introvert sent me this funny picture, like this meme, this photo of how introverts host dinner parties or connect groups. And it was this picture of this beautifully laden table. It was really lovely, nicely set out with the candles and the food and everything and because it was a din- an introvert's dinner party above was a little banner that said please leave by 9pm <laughs> and I, I don't know about you sometimes I could do with one of those not all the time if you come to my house for dinner you are incredibly welcome to be there but I love preparing the food I love decorating the table um, and recently on Father's Day, I love a good excuse to celebrate. We got out the party hats and the posh napkins and the kids drank their squash out of Prosecco glasses and we gather around, which is dangerous, I know, but they're getting older, so slightly less dangerous as they, as they get older. But we gathered around our table and we celebrated Dan. We blessed him. We told him what we love about him. We told him what God sees in him. And it was great. I love the opportunity to be able to train up our kids in that way. And I'd encourage encourage you to gather around the table, to gather your friends and your family around the table. And I've got three very close friends. We call ourselves table friends. And we endeavor to gather together. Um, Every couple of months, we get around the table. There's Joy, who's over at Highcombe this morning. And then we've got Jude, who leads worship so beautifully. Um, And Marie Claire, we gather around the table and it's kind we, we call it go deep or go home. We get around the table, it's beautifully set. We always make sure we make an effort to make it look lovely. And we talk about the deep things around marriage and parenting and faith. And we ask each other the difficult questions around how faith's going, what's our connection with Jesus like? And we have some deep conversations around the table. It's a real privilege to have Stuart and Irene around our table the other Friday. Hopefully it was a nice meal. I made prawns. And when I saw next week, uh, the next day that they didn't have food poisoning, I genuinely felt a sense of peace. I thought there was anointing on me to make those prawns. But it's great to have Stuart and Irene around our table. Gathering around the table is better. I love what can happen around the table. And if there was a time machine, I don't think it's biblical to talk about time machines, but if there was a time machine and I could go back anywhere, I would go back first century Palestine, sat around the table, knowing that actually their tables weren't like ours. They're often like rugs and cushions on the floor in a slightly more upper house, upper class Jewish house. You would have um, a little three-legged table with a, um, a cover that would cover the food. And I'd love to be sat there with Jesus and his disciples. Can you imagine it? smell the smells, you dip your bread in the same stew that Jesus is dipping his bread in. And if I could go back to any place, that's where it would be, because there is power around the table. Jesus often told parables around the table, and I'm going to talk around this for a little bit, and then I'm just going to come into three points that I'd love to bring out this morning. There's three points. They all begin with R, to honor our senior pastor here, points that all begin with the same letter. Um, So I want to look at the power of the table this morning. Jesus often told parables about the table, about banquets. He told stories about guests who refused dinner invitations, who didn't dress appropriately for a banquet or who chose to sit at the wrong seat at the table. Scriptures littered 
adorned. Should I say it's adorned with examples of campfire feasts, entertaining angels, eating with God at the top of a mountain, like I spoke about earlier, palace feasts, banquets, fattened calves, unleavened loaves of bread, loaves and fish packed lunches, freshly baked baked bread. And running through it all, through the whole of scripture, is this ultimate invitation to all of us to come and eat at the table with God, to take our place at the table of the greatest banquet that there ever was or that there ever will be. And in Revelation, we read, don't we, Jesus saying, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. What, what a gentleman. This is the God of the universe, the God who created us, whose fingerprints are all over us. And he stands and knocks at the door of our life. And he goes on to say this, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. What the ultimate invitation ever. We open the door and it doesn't just say that we'll eat with him, that he will eat with us. And this is really significant within Jewish culture, which we'll unpack a little bit. That was the NIV version. There is a version that makes Jesus sound like a white upper class Oxbridge student. I'm going to read it to you because it made me laugh. Behold ye, I stand at ye door and knocketh. If any man heareth my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. I used to go, I went to university with a really posh girl who would use that phrase, sup. The the meal between after dinner and before you go to bed, we call it a snack pot in our house where we chuck in a few Cheerios and a bit of malt loaf for the boys. But they call it to sup with one another. And they used to say, would you like to come round to my house for sups? I didn't even know what that meant, but I do know now. But we all know, don't we, that Jesus isn't a white upper class Oxbridge student. Sometimes it's good to remind ourselves of that though. Jesus often uses the, the uh, meals that he has um, to tell the parables. He tells the parables whilst having these meals, whilst gathered around the table with Jesus. And I know, I know that Jesus' followers gave up everything to follow him, but they must have had some really great meals along the way. They must have ate, eaten some great food and had some fantastic company. And we know, don't we, as we're going to come and take communion at the end of the service, that some of Jesus' Jesus' most profound, cherished words were uttered at the meal he shared with his disciples the night before the crucifixion, in which he spoke about what we now know as the communion table. So we're going to explore a little bit around what scripture teaches us about the table, what we can learn from Jesus' Jewish roots. We do know Jesus wasn't a Christian. He was a Jew. Well, that might be up for theological debate. That's one of the first questions I gave to the academy students. Was Jesus a Christian? Kept them entertained for about half an hour while we debated, was Jesus a Christian? But he was a Jew, wasn't he? We know that he was a Jew and that we can learn a lot from his Jewish roots. And it gives us insight when we understand, when we hear things the way the disciples would have heard things, then we get an insight into the kingdom of God. So the power of the table. Oh yeah, and I'm going to look at a little bit actually at the end. How when Jesus said at the Last Supper, take this cup and drink, how the disciples would have heard, will you marry me? And I'm going to unpack that a little bit at the end. Just this fascinating, interesting, powerful insight into Jewish culture. So the power of the table, if you're taking notes, and that's what we're looking at, the power of the table. There's three points that I'd like to look at. The table teaches us about relationship, 
That's first and foremost. It is welcoming, always welcoming, welcoming us into relationships. So the table teaches us about relationship. It's a table of relationship. It's a table of reconciliation where we are utterly reconciled to God, where there's peace, there's no enmity between us and God, there's peace that exists between us and God. So it's a table of relationship, a table of reconciliation, and a table of remembrance. So my first point is relationship. If you're writing notes, pop that down. Relationship. If I was in America, I'd tell you to turn to the person next to you and say relationship. Um, but I won't do that because I am, I'm always very conscious of the, um, of the introverts in the room. However, declaration is powerful. You know, when we declare things out, one, it helps us. It just helps the way that our brain works. It helps it, it connect into our brain. And two, it just helps us declare something. When we say the table is a place of relationship, we're declaring something in the natural and the supernatural. But the table's always been a place of significance throughout Scripture. You look from the Old Testament to the New Testament, um, Old Testament through to the New Testament, Genesis to Revelation. The table is important. It all started with an apple, or debatable, a forbidden fruit. Um, but particularly through Jewish history, the table is incredibly significant. It was more than a place to eat. It was a place of mutual trust and vulnerability. Sitting down at the same table as somebody, eating a meal with them was a declaration. It meant that you shared a protected relationship with them. Something really powerful there for Alpha, isn't it? When we're sitting and eating, sitting around a table with people, there's something old and ancient that we're tapping into. Something means we're sharing a protected relationship with us. God is inviting us around the table. But who you ate with said something about you. It's one of the kind of loudest things, maybe more so than what you would wear. Who you ate with said something about you. It It spoke about to whom you belonged. It spoke about who you were in relationship with. So Jesus' decision to sit down and eat with sinners, with the broken, with the down and out, with the vulnerable, with the outcast, wasn't him being nice. (laughs) I'm sure Jesus is nice. Of course Jesus is nice. He's more than nice. But um, it was more than him being too polite to turn down an invitation. In fact, we see often he actively went out and sought out sinners to eat with. We read that in the Gospel of Luke with the tax collector Levi. He literally goes out to seek people to eat with, to gather around the table with, like I said earlier, the broken, the marginalized. And this was a huge statement. Within the culture of the day, him eating with people wasn't just a nice thing to do. It was a huge statement about who he was and who we were to him and who he is to us. He was making a bold and prophetic statement about the kingdom of God. Just by eating with people, this is why it really riled the Pharisees. Again and again, they get irritated. They call him a drunkard, that he's associating with all these people. It really riles them because he's making a kingdom statement into a broken culture. It's saying a lot about who he is. By gathering around the table to eat with broken people, Jesus was speaking right into the religious systems of the day. Hence why the Pharisees were irritated about it. I love how much Jesus irritated the Pharisees. I've been reading recently, I've been going back through the Gospels in the message translation of the Bible. And it's hilarious. Often we can be a bit, we can sometimes create a different version. Hi in the balcony. Sorry, I hadn't, hello. Um, Create like a slightly different caricature of Jesus 
until we get into the word and realize he said some really full-on things. You brood of vipers, you bag of snakes, get away from me. Never said that to the broken, never said it to the marginalized. He was speaking right into the religious systems of the day. So speak, gathering around a table was a rebellious act. I love that about Jesus. Don't you just love Jesus? Honestly, when we get to see who he really is, he is such a powerful revolutionary. Of course he is. He's God. Of course he is. That's a ridiculous statement. Um, But I'd encourage you, if you've forgotten a little bit who Jesus is, get your head in the word. Read it in a different translation. Remind yourself of what's written in red, the bits that Jesus said, and remind yourself of who he really is. I was thinking that, actually, about church attendance. We're like, oh, you know, it's full of grace. I can say this because this isn't my location. <laughs> um, oh, you know, it's about grace. It's about grace, you know. Um, God's really happy for me to go off and do this. Actually, Jesus was all about sacrifice. He was all about sacrifice. He was all about going to the temple. He was all about denying yourself in order to step into the bigger picture of God. It's important. We can't create caricatures of who Jesus was just to, just to keep us nice and safe and comfortable. He challenged us again and again and again. And it isn't comfortable. It's tricky. But that's what he does. And I love him all the more for it. So he spoke right right into the systems and the hierarchies of the day. The hierarchy of the day was expressed in the temple, in just the way that the temple was constructed, the uh, the very architecture of the temple. Hence the fact that he destroys the temple and then we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the temple, you've got the outer courts where the Gentiles, us, most of us, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, they could go. Then there's a big old wall. Next wall, the Jewish women can go in. Then there's another wall. The wall after that, the men can go in. The wall after that, it's the priests that can go in. And the only people that can go into the Holy of Holies is the high priest. And it's only one time a year on Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. But can you see it speaks of hierarchy again and again and again. It's telling people you can't reach the Holy of Holies because your skin's this color. You can't reach the Holy of Holies because of your gender. You can't reach the Holy of Holies because of your situation. And Jesus comes to smash it all. And one of the most powerful strategies, hallelujah, Grace, thank you. One of the most powerful strategies he uses to do that is to gather around the table and to eat with people. When the whole system of the day is screaming and declaring, no undesirables allowed, Jesus is saying, no. In the kingdom, there are no undesirables. In the kingdom of God, there are no undesirables. It was a table of scandalous grace. Every table that Jesus ate at was a table of scandalous grace. It's a table of scandalous grace then, and this is a table of scandalous grace now, because I'm invited, and you're invited, and we're all invited, and it's this beautiful prophetic invitation from the Old Testament to the New Testament saying, let me in and I'll eat with you. Let me in and I'll be in relationship with you. I'll let my reputation be, be identified, I'll let my reputation be defined by identifying with you, even when we're broken even when we're in need of healing, he invites us. And this affects the way that we live, the way we do our ordinary life. Romans 12, doesn't it, tells us, doesn't it? Take your everyday ordinary life, you're sleeping, you're eating, you're walking around life and place it before him as an offering. When we know we have a seat at the table, we don't have to fight like people fighting for a seat. 
We are not fighting for a seat at the table. If you have accepted the invitation of Jesus Christ this morning, you are invited. You have a seat at the table. If you haven't accepted that this morning, you are invited to the table. The best invitation you will ever get, the ultimate dinner party throughout the whole of history. There is power in the table. We don't live like people fighting for a place. We live like those who are invited. We're not on the temple courts, behind a wall, behind a wall, behind a wall. God welcomes us into the Holy of Holies. More than that, the Holy of Holies comes to dwell in us and we become a temple. When we know we're invited, it changes the way we live. It impacts our relationships. It means we don't have to hustle. It means there's no space for insecurity no space for insecurity at the table. We're all seated at it. There needs no need for overworking, approval, addiction. You're invited. Your place is secure. There's a place with your name on it. Your name. Your name is there on the table, beautifully carved out by God. And we recently had some people around for breakfast. Um, we love to do brunch, mainly because then I know people will leave by 9 p.m. if we get them around for brunch in the morning. So that seems like a good... Um, by the way, if you have come to my house for, to my house for dinner and stayed after 9 p.m., please don't feel bad. We just love, we absolutely love having you there, uh, genuinely. But um, we had some people around, and Hudson, my, I've got a little boy, he's just about to turn six, and he made, he's so creative, he made these little um, placemats for everybody. He found some brown card, it's actually really expensive, and I was going to use it for a different craft, but I thought, I'm not going to get across at you because this is really sweet. Um, and he wrote everybody's name, and he wrote that he um, drew them a little picture on it of it. And I just felt like God say, I do that for you. I literally create a place at the table with your name on it, that we are invited. And you know, he expects hospitality from his followers. He expects it. Um, hospitality is huge throughout the Bible, and we won't go into that this morning. But Matthew 25, 35 says, I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. If Jesus is our model, we need to ask ourselves the question, who is at our table? We're not to guard our table. We're meant to open our table up. It's meant to be a place of relationship. And I was, because God's got this brilliant sense of humor, I was really challenged on this as I was writing this message It's my only child-free morning. My youngest, Smith, he'd gone to nursery. It's my only morning. So I was like getting all the housework done, sitting down to prep my message, and there's a knock at the door. And I'm honest, my heart sank. And somebody knocked on the door and said, oh, you up for a cup of tea? In my head, I was thinking, no, this is my only morning. I've got loads of stuff to do. But I felt God say, just remember what you're writing a message about, Joe. Just remember that you practice what you preach. Don't get up and preach a message about gathering around the table and then when when somebody comes to gather around your table, it's inconvenient for you, so you make an exclusive and close the door. So actually, I invited her in. It was great. We had a cup of tea um, out in the garden, sat either side of our patio table, and I just felt like God say, this is where the good stuff happens. This is where the stuff, this is where the relationship stuff happens. And if we're too busy to gather around our table for relationship, then I would suggest to us that we're too busy. This, the, there is power in the table. It's a power in gathering people around the table for relationship. So it was a place of relationship. Secondly, it was a place of reconciliation. In biblical times, the table represented a place of peace. Parties to a covenant of peace celebrated it with a meal. 
And after they'd celebrated, so say they'd had a grievance, then they decide they'd fallen out, something had happened within the family or within the culture, then they would make a covenant. They would have a covenant of peace. They'd sit down and eat a meal and then they could never mention it again. So once that meal had taken place, and think as as I'm talking about cultural stuff, think about what the disciples would have heard when Jesus sat round a table with them. He's saying, I'm making a covenant of peace with you. The grievances will never be mentioned between you and I again. We read that, don't we, in the Psalms, as far as the east is, as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. It's a place of reconciliation. And so they sat and had a meal. So this isn't like English stiff upper lip meal where you sit and eat your meal in aggressive silence and then never mention it again, but you mention it all the time, but just without using words. This isn't that kind of let's punish each other with silent treatment and never mention it again. This was joyful feasting. It was celebration. It was kissing each other on the cheeks. It was about peace with God and peace with each other. It was a table of reconciliation. Let me just give you an example. Do you remember the story of Laban and Jacob? It's in Genesis 31, and we won't go there, but you can have a little read of it. So Jacob had fallen in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel, but on their wedding day at the last moment, Laban substituted, the text says this, his older and less attractive daughter. Let's say beauty's in the eye of the beholder, obviously, but she was labeled as his older and less attractive daughter, Leah. Then Jacob married her and did not discover it till after the wedding night and the following morning. I have some questions about this, but we haven't got time to go into that. We're going to stick to the text. But after working seven years to wed Rachel, he, uh, he worked seven years to wed Rachel. He then had to work another seven years to wed... No, to, yeah... No, yeah, sorry, yeah, I've got myself confused. He, he went, yeah, he had to work another seven years, 14 years all in all. And in the end, he just gets fed up of uh, Laban's shenanigans. He takes both wives, all the children, the cattle, and he goes, which is quite understandable because there's a lot going on there. But then Laban catches up with him. 10 days later, the scripture tells us, to, he catches up with him. And then we read that the two make a covenant, which is a binding contract with huge weight, more than our contracts that we have today. So he make a binding covenant of peace and then they share a meal. And this is where we understand what's going on. Genesis 31. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the father, in, in the name of the fear of his father Isaac, Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to the meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, after all the meal, they sat down. Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters. He blessed them and then he left and returned home. In other words, we've eaten, it's done and dusted. We'll never mention it again. I'm off. All was forgiven. It was done. By eating together, they weren't just having a nice meal They were proclaiming their relationship was restored because the meal was part of a sacrifice to God. It was understand that God was understood by them, that God was present and witness to it all. The table is a powerful place of peace and reconciliation. And then think forward to the New Testament. I love this. The meal that Jesus and Peter had on the beach. Jesus cooks him breakfast. He sets out a metaphorical table and he cooks him some fish. He did it after Peter denied him three times. 
Peter probably had some understanding that he was invited to the table and then he felt like he went and absolutely royally messed it up. He denies him three times. There's the crucifixion, there's the resurrection and then Jesus meets with Peter and he cooks him breakfast on the beach and he sits and he eats with them, with him. This is a prophetic statement that he's making. He is saying to Peter, you are reconciled, you are at peace, there's peace between me and you, a covenant has been made and anything before that shall never be mentioned again. Can you imagine that was the best meal of Peter's life? Just the best meal of Peter's life. I imagine it tasted great. Fried fish in the morning by the beach. Perfect. But don't you just think that that he understood the weight of what it meant to be invited to the table and to be so reconciled to God that he was never going to bring it again. Peter took his place at the table and ate with Jesus. Judas ran away and never took his place at the table again. Let's not let our sin and our mistakes and the way we perpetually mess up in our brokenness to keep us away from the table. God invites us again and again. So the table is a place of relationship, it's a place of reconciliation, and finally it's a place of remembrance. And this is going to lead us into our time of taking communion together. So the Jewish nation were accustomed to feasts and to remember using feasts to remember throughout the whole of their annual calendar the calendar the way that they do calendars there were often feasts things that they would do to have to remember God to remember how God had redeemed them how he led them out of slavery and led them into freedom and through the feast they remembered what defined them as people through gathering around the table they remembered who they were and they remember whose they were I don't know about you, but I sometimes need reminding about those things. I need somebody to remind me or something to remind me who I am and whose I am. Uh, You may have heard me talk about this before. I call it my Jaffa Cake theology. For me, I know I've forgotten who and whose I am when I'm just mindlessly overeating my way through a packet of Jaffa Cakes. For me, that's my signal. Joe, you've forgotten who you are and whose you are. Your behavior might be something different, but you'll have some warning sign somewhere that you've forgotten who you are and whose you are. And when we forget, whether that means that we look at the things on the internet we shouldn't be looking at, or we drink too much wine, or we eat too much food, or we close down our table, or our language becomes bad, whatever it is, whatever is our trigger that tells us we've forgotten who and whose we are, I believe God invites us around the table to remember again. To remember that we're invited to a table where there will be a heavenly feast, but to remember when we gather around the table with others, we can remind one another of who and whose we are. These table feasts are constant reminders to them. And you know, even amongst some of the most evil dehumanization of the Jews, they continued this. Think through the Holocaust, if they could. I've been reading a great book um, about different stories of Jewish people. different examples of um, Jewish stories throughout the Holocaust and the thread that runs through it all, if they could, if they were able to find refuge somewhere, what they'd do is keep up these feasts. They'd keep up the Shabbat meal on a Friday. They'd keep up their feast because it is so important to remembering who they are and whose they are while the world is trying to dehumanize them. And there's just this great quote from a lady called Ryan Eisler and she says this, I was born into a Viennese Jewish family And when the Nazis took over, we fled to Cuba. There my parents did everything they could to keep up the Jewish traditions. Eating and praying with my family gave me childhood memories, but rooted me in who I was and to whom I belonged. 
My mother baked bread for Shabbat, and every Shabbat she lit the holiday candles. You know, when our identity is under attack, when life might be a bit of a struggle, when we're bending over the pressure of our circumstances or disappointment, I believe that God reappoints us at the table. If you're disappointed this morning, come to the table. Come gather around the table. Help people, get people to remind you who and whose you are and see God reappoint you. When we remember who we are and who, to whom we belong, we get reappointed. So important. Psalm 23 tells us, doesn't, doesn't it? He lays a table for us in the presence of our enemies. So as we go into communion, and before I lead into that, I'm just going to give people an opportunity to accept the invitation to the table for the first time, if you would like to do that. But let me explain a little bit what I meant about the proposal. In Jewish culture, when a man was going to propose to a woman, his family and her family would all get together for dinner around the table, and the man would ask for an opportunity to propose. That's how it would happen. Usually the families behind the scenes were drawing up contracts and all that kind of stuff, but the man, Jewish man would ask for the opportunity to propose. So while they were all gathered around the table, he would take a cup of wine, and he would hold it to the woman and say, come and drink. If she drank of the wine, that would mean she accepted and he had the opportunity to propose, to enter into covenant. If she didn't, that would probably just be a really awkward meal. (laughs) But if she accepted, it's a proposal that he is making. Then the bride would remain with her parents and the groom would leave her and he would tell her this, in my father's house is many rooms. I'm gonna go and prepare a place for you. Sounding familiar? So he would go and he would build an extension onto his father's house. And he would say to her, I will be gone a while, but I am coming back. And in the meantime, prepare yourself for me coming to get my bride. Then when the home was all ready, the groom would return for his bride without any notice. She wouldn't know the day or the hour. She literally would walk out of her home and straight into the marriage ceremony and into the wedding banquet. So at the Last Supper, when Jesus is offering this wine and saying, take this cup and drink. Have you ever been to a dinner party where someone behaves a bit inappropriately? At this dinner party, it was Jesus. He was washing people's feet and proposing to them. But they would have understood the context of all the things he'd said before about a wedding feast and a marriage, and they wouldn't know the day and the hour. They'd know it because of their culture. And so that's why it's so important that we dig, that we understand what's going on in the picture. He offers the cup and says, drink. This theme is woven throughout all of Jesus' teaching that he invites us to the table, that he invites us to eat with him. He invites us to come into covenant with him. He invites us to be part of the wedding banquet. And we will not know the day or the hour, but we can be utterly assured that he will be back. So when he says to us, when he says to us to do this in remembrance of me, there's so much more going on at the very thread of what's going on here. He's wooing you and welcoming you and proposing to you and inviting you into relationship with him. 
He's inviting you to be reconciled to Him. Even if we've gone and denied Him three times, He cooks breakfast for us and invites us. It's a table of relationship, of reconciliation and remembrance. So I'm gonna pray. I wanna pray for those of us that might want to accept that invitation for the first time, knowing that Jesus is knocking at the door. He's not barging it down. He's knocking gently and saying, if you let me in, you can eat with me and I'll, be, I'll eat with you. We'll be in relationship. We'll be utterly reconciled. And I'll teach you to remember who and whose you are. So I'd love to pray for you. I'm going to ask those who have already made this commitment, who know that their place at the banquet is sealed. Um, I'd ask you if you close your eyes and bow your heads. And I'm going to read this prayer. And for those of us that want to accept this invitation for the first time, or maybe we've gone off and denied and we want to accept again, I'm going to ask you to pop your hand up so we can pray for you and connect with you. And the prayer is this. Thank you, God, for loving me before I ever loved you. As I read this, if you'd say it in your hearts or say it out loud. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. Thank you that I can get connected to you now, that I can be in relationship with you, I can be reconciled to you because you are alive today. I admit that I've lived my life without you. I've messed up. I ask for your total forgiveness and I commit myself to you. Help me to submit my life to your teaching and direction from now on. I receive you into my life. I accept your invitation and I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. If anyone's accepted that invitation for the first time, eyes are closed, heads are bowed. We're just cheering you on to accept that invitation. So nobody's looking apart from me, maybe some guys in the worship team. So if that's you, I'd love you just to pop your hand up. We don't want to embarrass you. We want to connect with you and celebrate with you want to get around a table with you if you want to connect with anyone on the leadership at the end we're around we'd love to chat and then we're going to finish by taking communion bearing all that stuff in mind that we're reconciled that we're in relationship with God and that as we drink as he extended that hand with that cup of wine he was he was proposing. He was inviting us into a covenant relationship with him. So I'm going to pray as the servers come and take the bread and the wine. I'm going to pray and then you'll be directed as to how to receive this meal. So I'm going to pray. The table of bread is now to be made ready. It is the table of company with Jesus and all who love him and eat with him. So come to this table you who have much faith and you who would like to have some more. You who have been here often and you who've not been here for a long time. You who have tried to follow Jesus and like Peter, failed. Come and be restored. Come and eat with the King. It is Christ who invites us to meet him here. So the band are going to play. The servers are going to come and direct you to when to eat of this meal and do it mindful of what we've learned this morning and as we accept the invitation to be in covenant with Jesus.